Welcome to This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. My name is Timothy Vircola, and we're going to talk about the big stories of the week that have appeared at thisiscommonsense.org, which is Paul Jacob's website that he's been working on since 1999. This is September 1st, 2023. Yes, it is. I saw Penn & Teller last night. Oh, did you? In Las Vegas. Las Vegas. Yes, in Las Vegas at the Rio. And uh, Penn mentioned taxation is theft at one point, and there was there was noticeable applause in parts of the audience. I thought that was interesting. But we have Vivek Ramaswamy back this week in commentary because he said some things about climate change. And uh, go look; it was uh, Monday's piece and uh my computer's not gonna work but uh the name of it was bashing climate change and uh he was on he was on uh dana bash's program on cnn and she you know her head kind of kept exploding because he's you know she was all about climate change but in the usual insane sort of way that that you know, if you believe in climate change, stay away from the people screaming on TV about climate change because they don't seem to want to do anything about it. And Vivek Ramaswamy said, look, we are safer today against the climate than ever before, in large part because of fossil fuels. Well, he made it seem like it was entirely because of fossil fuels, but there have been other things that other technology that maybe wasn't fossil fuel created but of course it it has fueled an economy and a world in which good things have happened and maybe we ought to look at that same sort of progress of more technology and 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 take some pride in and and some sense of hey let's double down on this thinking about things and designing new ways to live more abundantly. That sounds a lot better than, you know, shooting craps on the corner. Um, and so, and and part of that has been fossil fuels. And our, you know, and I didn't have anything to do with it. Trust me, if it was up to me, the combustion engine wouldn't have ever happened. But uh, but somebody did, and a bunch of somebodies, and they then they refined it and refined it. And his whole suggestion was, we ought to look at how we compensate for the climate and he didn't really say specifically but to put the other side to that coin let's stop thinking that somehow we are are going to stop the oceans you know obama was going to stop the ocean from rising we're going to have just the right international policy at all these bs events that these different diplomats and politicians go to and we're going to stop and, and level off the climate. We're going to, oh, was, was 72 too warm for you this, this century? Well, we'll move it to, this is insanity. And, and you kind of think, well, Paul, you're not a scientist. But I'm also not being paid by the federal government. I'm also not part of this crazy intelligentsia 
that wants to dictate everybody's movements like they're Chinese genocidal totalitarians, but want to do it in the name of helping everybody because the climate, you know, it's going to, we're all going to die in 10 years and then 10 years, we're all going to die in 10 years. This isn't getting us anywhere. And what, what Vivek pointed out is 1920, a hundred people who died in 1920, there were two dying today from climate related incidents. That's progress. Let's make more of that progress. And who knows what climate is coming? But if the oceans do rise, I think rather than these, you know, stupid international conferences and a bunch of people making promises that they don't even intend to, to keep, much less would they be able to, they ought to think about what do we need to do? How much is it rising? Maybe we need to do what the, the Dutch have done and to build levees. And you know, I mean, there's all kinds of things that may need to be done. Let's think about that. And it's worth reminding people that, uh, the oceans have been rising for, you know, 150, 200 years at a steady clip. But our production of civilizational CO2 has not been rising at a steady clip. It made a huge, steep incline during World War II and, and following. Uh, and that's true, but it was also increasing earlier. Uh, but it was not, you know, but the incline that we contributed didn't have a similarly, you know, similar incline in ocean rises. So that's interesting. Also, most people don't think and probably wouldn't think that the amount of civilizational CO2, you know, atmospheric CO2 that we created through the internal combustion engine and so forth, wasn't significant in 1850, right? But the indication is that the oceans have been rising. Now, it's worth mentioning a few things. I just wanted just a little science, just because I'm on Ramaswamy's side, I'm on your side. But it is worth mentioning that we measure the ocean rising by what is happening on the continents, you know, on, on rock, right? Right. Now, what happens when rock goes up or down? What if the continents are going up and down? And they are. Because, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the ocean is decreasing in Sweden. It's going down because Sweden is going up. They never mentioned Ooh. this little, little weird little fact, and there's never a lot of, reason- of it. That's that's this is one of the things that people have to keep in mind is that continents do things, and they aren't they aren't eternal and stable. We can't do anything about the continents, and if you think that we can, you're an idiot. Uh, so that's <laughs> no one believes that. No, no one talks about that. But it is interesting to know that, that in Sweden, the the uh, the ocean the ocean water, the sea level is going down. It's not going wow. up. Be that Sweden is going up, and we don't know, but I think America's probably going down because it. Well, you know, there's just been a lot happening when when America, twelve thousand years ago, had uh, was has had was uh, covered in ice sheets, and then they evaporated, they, they they liquefied, they did whatever they did very quickly at the end of the Pleistocene. Well, the continent went up, but then since then, maybe it's been going down. I mean, these are things that we should be as concerned about. I think it's interesting, and are I you like saying America's going down. Tim? It could be, Come yeah, on. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, and what uh, Australia is doing, I'm, I'm curious about also. Just this, these are just interesting things, and it's just interesting science. And Ramaswamy is not being anti-science; he's being very level-headed. Yes, he is. And and the truth is, it'd be nice if the real science were discussed, not just the politics of it, but the real science, where there were just not, different scientists could speak, and maybe just invite the scientists that aren't getting their money from the government. 
Right. And that uh, be an interesting discussion. Wouldn't be an interesting discussion? <laughs> there might not be anybody sitting in any chairs on that stage, but um, I wanted to mention something else about Vivek Ramaswamy, and, and and maybe I'll address this in a in a commentary, but maybe not. He this week very much backed off his comments on Taiwan that we talked about last week. Remember, he had said, I'm going to be clear with China and end this strategic ambiguity. And I'm going to say, if you attack Taiwan, we are coming to their military defense. But I'm only saying that until 2028, by which time, and I'm speaking as as Vivek, at which time we will have had full you know, independence on on semiconductors. And, uh, and of course, <laughs> I'm not so sure that that's going to happen. But uh, and especially if, if people in Taiwan go, well, you know, maybe maybe we're not helping if you are going to do what he then said next, which was that after 2028, it's a nationalistic dispute and China can have Taiwan, basically. He has come back and said, oh, no, no. What I meant was after 2028, we will return to today's policy, strategic ambiguity. And I probably should write a commentary on this because strategic ambiguity is a stupid concept in today's world in Southeast Asia. And it's not helpful. And it's a bad policy. And what Vivek is really doing is backpedaling because people don't like the idea of handing 24 million people over to the Chinazis. They just don't like that idea. Nobody does that's decent. And of course, this idea that we're going back to strategic ambiguity, he's already said what he said. And, you know, I think sometimes we're a little bit too, you know, uh, can't say that, can't say that, and I'm arguing usually, let's have a very full-blown discussion. But when you're running for president, when you're president, what you say matters. And so, <laughs> nobody in there, what are you going to have, a, some beam, moon, you know, mind-bending thing that everyone in China will have forgotten what you've said, uh, everyone in the world will. So it was a, it was not a smart statement just in and of itself was was kind of reckless but it's also it, it, it its educational value i think is it is a bad policy strategic ambiguity it came out of crappy no good diplomatic ease how do we how do we you know switch allegiance here cuz this is better and have it say it this way but have it that way um and, and that's where it came from. And it would be helpful for China to know that the U.S. and Japan and South Korea and the different countries will come to their aid, uh, to the aid of Taiwan if it attacks, because I think it's less likely to attack. But here's the rub. It's nice to say it if you mean it. It's not nice to say it if you don't. And and. Those who might attack Ramaswamy have the same responsibility to look at all the countries that we have said we're going to defend and think about how should we and if we should, how 
And I am increasingly in favor of alliances of free countries so that we are committed in some way. But I'm only for it if people are actually committed. And I think there needs to be a component of the public being engaged, which really since, you know, in the Cold War, we were kind of interested observers. <laughs> and now we're disinterested observers. And we have to get we have to get interested and out of the observer class. Uh, and and uh, but I do th- I, I wish more people running for president would speak to who we're going to defend, why, how, uh, because I think I think uh, in America and around the world, people are hungry for a real this is what we're really about. When we talk about values, actually having those values and standing behind them. And I think there's a, a tremendous amount, not even just in America, but around the world, in Europe and, and Africa and Asia and Latin America and South America. There is a, there's a hunger for change and for democracy. And I'm talking about human rights democracy and uh and so often it's it's a contest on our television sets and at the UN and anywhere where the governments have all the say it's a contest between this thug and that thug and i think look sometimes it's it's a it's a corrupt you know sometimes it's joe biden or donald trump uh geez that, that wasn't really what i had in mind but that's better than maybe xi jinping uh, and so sometimes those things matter. But um, why couldn't we have someone who literally could articulate, here's what we're about. Um, and to the, to the degree that our leaders can't articulate what our foreign policy is, what they're actually wanting to do, and don't include us in it, since it's it's we who are going to be affected by it, it's almost by definition going to be rotten policy because it doesn't have that. I mean, think of a company where um, all the decisions are made by people that are never discussed among the people who are carrying out those decisions. It's not, it's not really the way they teach you to do it in management school. And uh, not that I've been, but, uh, but anyway, so um, I, I thought that was interesting to see uh, Ramaswamy backpedal on that. And frankly, it, it, it's too late for him to effectively backpedal. But it raises some issues that still have to be answered. And I'm, I'm very much in favor of alliances to defend free countries in Asia and elsewhere if necessary. And then if we can find any free countries. Um, but that's, you know, that's not everybody's position. Let's have the debate. Let's make some decisions and let's hold our elected officials accountable because Joe Biden has said four or five times that we will militarily defend Taiwan. And, and they, they say it's been walked back. Well, no, it hasn't been walked back. It has, I know we're going on a tangent here, but we should. Um, it hasn't been walked back. It's been tiptoed, <laughs> danced, tangoed back 
to strategic ambiguity. Well, what is strategic ambiguity? It's that we won't say what we're going to do. Well, you just said. What do you mean you won't say? So it's like I said a minute ago, but now I won't say. I've said again we're going to do it, but now I won't say. Does anyone in their right mind think that's a good policy? Well, I think that some war theorists think it's a good policy. And yeah. uh, and they think of it partly because MAD seemed to work for 50 years or 60 years. and But, but that wasn't strategic ambiguity. There was an that ambiguity was always in one thing, is that there's never been certain that a defensive position would actually initiate the end of the world. Uh, that it's always been ambiguous whether full-scale nuclear war would actually happen and whether a person in his right mind could push the button to destroy life on Earth. And that's always been ambiguous. And you're and, saying the second strike is has been ambiguous. Yes. And because of that, it's that's and that's always been a part of MAD, though it's never been, almost never discussed, because no one wants to discuss it. So I'm kind of curious, maybe strategic ambiguity is just a part of military and, and planning and... Uh, just war scheming that normally goes on that we aren't aware of because we aren't military men because or, or aren't in on, on the discussions right we're just yeah. not in a, and so I, that's just that's my question because i just believe that there has been always an element as soon as the russians got the bombs uh of whether our people could actually do it and we know that you know, Curtis LeMay could have done it, but would JFK could have done it? That's an interesting right, question. Right, uh, would right. Jimmy Carter have done it? Would Ronald Reagan have done it? I'm not sure Ronald Reagan right. would have done it. I do kind of think that knowing that missiles are incoming <laughs> might change. I mean, because I kind of think, would I do it? And and it's kind of easy to say now, but I don't have a bunch of you know. <laughs> well, of course, that's one of the weapons raining down on me. But, but of course, one of the things we we do have is that that there is more anti-ballistic uh, potential now in our armed forces than there was then. They can yes. shoot down a lot more missiles than they used to be. I mean, of course, the experience with the, the Iron Dome over Israel has been interesting uh so and we just don't know what the extent of it is you know we, we used to talk about star wars and make fun of it you know the star wars initiative from the from the uh, strategic defense initiative from the reagan period but as far as i can tell that could have been a contributor to the downfall of the soviet union because they couldn't keep up and it, we probably have a lot of it the united states government that's that's the one thing that well, our military is good at yes yes no and 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 uh and i don't think it was stupid at the time i, I think there was legitimate very legitimate fear that it was just another another excuse uh to like spend more money on the military but um and and i always think you have to take that objection because we know those things happen but um but it made total sense it's like why not defend ourselves yeah, and actual so, defense yes and it's amazing <laughs> you know they have taken out uh russian you know hypersonic missiles with the, the patriots that they have and 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 I, I don't think that's the and i don't know uh, to be honest but i don't think that's the highest uh caliber defensive uh missile that we have and so it's like uh you know we the whole reason they're coming up with hypersonic missiles and i i may have mentioned this last last podcast uh is that they're trying to get around our defenses and it's one reason why the u.s has been behind because they don't have the defenses that we have 
And so we haven't felt the need to get around the defenses that they don't have. Uh, so, you know, there is, and I think, I think also that uh, I, I see a lot of stuff uh, on Chinese military and, you know, I've never been into, you know, I'm not a guy who grew up, Oh, what's the military doing now? And, and, you know, I was interested in wars, but much more from a political standpoint than a, than a military standpoint. But um, as I fear that one's coming and I might be living on this planet while it happens, I've been much more concerned. And, and because I think, the Chinese rulers, as terrible as they are, are not completely irrational. They're not Hitler in the sense of, you know, with some weird thing going on that that might trump reality. Um, and and so I think if they if the reality is that that they know we can beat them, they don't go to the fight. And that's you know that, that's that's a universal. Really, do people who know they're going to use lose a fight pick one? And uh, there are some, but not many. And they don't survive very long. Uh, but but that's you know, th- there's a flip side to that, too, though. And that is that the Chinese and, and this is in their philosophy and so on for you know thousands of years. The idea that you win without having to fight, that you win with your head and and they have boasted in ways that I think are, are very likely to intimidate people. And they have done things like find useful idiots. You know, they used to talk about useful idiots with the Russians, but I don't think the Russians were as good at finding useful idiots as the Chinese are. Uh, and and it's just, you know, those sorts of things and having this idea that we can't beat them. And, and I know people, I've had friends say, well, you know, look at a map. China's real big and Taiwan's small and China has more people. So, and, and, well, all those things are true and they're problems. But if you know very much about how difficult it is to invade uh, amphibiously, and if you know stuff about military things, it happens to be that the U.S. still has a clear air and naval superiority. Um, I think anybody who knows anything about that area of the world and military stuff knows that the big question is, do the Chinese have the missiles that will take out? Uh, a lot of naval ships, or maybe not so many, or maybe hardly any at all, or maybe all of you know. Y- you just don't know until you're in it. But um, but anyway, that's but but it's interesting that I think we have to show some strength, and I mean the greater we, not just the U.S., but Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, so on, uh, Europe, others, uh, free countries, and I think we have to be careful not to not to buy the the Chinese propaganda line because I, it, it isn't a case of, of, well, it's too late. They're so big and powerful and, and so on. And, and we'll see about the economy. Boy, there's so much talk. And we haven't really written about this particular thing, but so much talk about, but we've talked about it all the time, you and I, um, about China going belly up or, you know, I say belly up, but people say, you know, the economic problems in China, but as as I've said to you many times, and you're not so sure, I'm I'm just hoping China goes belly up before we do, because you know the the uh, the the economics that uh, and and I don't think it's limited to just China and the United States. The economics that governments around the world are deploying are are deplorable. Now you uh, did one other piece on China this week. Uh, the Chinese biolab in California. It's a quite a different thing. It's not really about China so much as America and what we've got here. 
Well, we found yes. something interesting, didn't we? Uh, that was an interesting, interesting news story. I'm not sure we had much to add to it, but it was an interesting news story that you saw more coverage of than I did. I saw almost nothing. You know, I, I'm. Um, I think all the all the uh, algorithms now know you know my name and to send me these these stories or something. But but I have uh, I followed this just because the original story was that they had infected these mice with COVID. And and so that's a pretty scary thing. Now, I happen to know, as as you do, too, Tim, that that uh, the CCP decided to stop travel within at the beginning of the pandemic within China, but for weeks allow Chinese people to fly all over the world. Um, so um, the idea that they might spread disease elsewhere uh, as some sort of official policy. This isn't this isn't something that Chinese people do. They try not to spread disease, but but the CCP might decide, you know what, we want to spread disease. And it looked like they did there. That turned out not to be true. But this was a lab in California. And it seems to me that it should have been bigger news when there was the incorrect thing. And it should be bigger news now, even without that. This is a lab in California, never registered with the government. And I'm not a big proponent of registering with the government, but when you're dealing with all kinds of pathogens um, and they abandon the lab. Not just any lab, it's a Chinese bio lab in America that was doing things that were off the uh, the script of the company. I mean, the, the company did have, they did find out I mean, they found the warehouse, they found the dead mice, they found the living mice, they found vials, they found people packaging stuff ready to go out. I mean, it was supposed to be to do something about, uh, it was something to do about women's health, if I remember right. Uh, that was the official uh, job for the biolab stuff. But the people in Reedley, where this was, didn't know that there was the operation there at all, which is I thought was kind of interesting. It's kind of interesting when a town doesn't know that there's a, there's a bio lab in it. That's just kind of interesting. Yes. Here's the thing, too. Go go read this piece, please, people. Uh, name of it is the Chinese bio lab in California. It was uh, Wednesday. But there's two other bits to this piece. I mean, to me, that's just big news. You know, just interesting. I I, I shouldn't say it that way. It's not big news. It's not going to affect everybody's life. It, it ended up something that we now have it's not going to hurt anybody it's okay boy does it teach a lesson of what's going on and what the chinese government thinks they can do and, and the government this is a chinese lab thing if you know anything about the way the chinese economy works this is not just a private chinese lab that decided to open up something in the united states without it being part of of what the government is involved in and uh and there are two other aspects. One, they got all kinds of public money. They got taxpayer money. And over 500000 in the in the Guardian story turns out that they didn't get. Uh, they, they At one point, it looked like they had qualified, but they never quite were able to pick up $360,000 uh, in a tax credit under the California uh, subsidy of business commie type program. Uh, uh, and that's not subsidy of business isn't for commie. It's more socialist, but, but, uh, I misspoke. And then the other part of it is you wonder, well, why, why haven't we heard more about this? Well, maybe part of it is 
they were told to clam up. The FBI told people to shut up about this. The people who found out about the lab, this is, you know, what is that about? What is that about? Well, they do really want to protect us from information that might frighten us into voting differently. I mean, that really is. (laughs) (laughs) That was so well said. (laughs) Well, there's uh, three other pieces of the week, uh, but very different subjects. We'll let people. uh, I just flew back from the West Coast. It's late on Friday. We'll let people uh, go to the the website. This is commonsense.org and read those. Couple of comments. Go read shrink, shrank, shrunk. This is a case of Dick Sporting Goods coming out and saying what many people know but haven't said so much. We are making greater sales, but our profits going down because people are stealing. Stealing's not good. In today's world, there are so many people on the left, generally, exclusively, <laughs> who think that stealing is kind of okay. You know, it's like it's like retro, you know, restributive justice or something. It's ugly and it's terrible, and it will destroy society. And you're not a good person if you think it's okay for one person to steal from another. It's it. It's the sort of thing that also hurts the poor the most. And I, I know, I know with the kids, um, I can remember um, being told that somebody said, well, was, you know, there's nothing really wrong with stealing something because they have insurance. And, you know, and so it doesn't hurt the company without like any idea that it might hurt the insurance company. But of course, the reality of all that is it hurts the honest person. And it hurts the rich and poor alike. But most of the things people are stealing, they're not stealing 100-foot yachts. They're stealing stuff in stores, and those stores raise their prices. And people who are working their butts off to make it in this world are the ones who pay the price. And it's just that our society has gotten so just ignorant of, like, just basic stuff. If, If we... You know, what religion doesn't believe that stealing is wrong? This is like an age-old thing. You've got to be an idiot to decide. That's the that's the thing that we ought to really test, is whether stealing's wrong. The two other pieces, uh, don't tread on Jalen. Jaden. Jaden. Um, a kid wears a backpack, and this is, I've seen the video so many times, and there's lots of memes on this, but A kid brings a backpack to school and it has the Gadsden flag. And because idiots have determined that that's somehow about slavery, which it isn't, uh, except as this piece points out, and you should go give it a read, if you will. Uh, I think you'll enjoy it. As this piece points out, that's the opposite. That's the the whole point of it is don't tread on me. And, and uh, so that, it, he go wears this to school, and they can't wait. I mean, the the you got to uh, there's a link to the video. Go watch the video, and the the uh, the teacher 
you know, just is making no sense. And the kid at one point is kind of smirking. <laughs> you know, just, he just realizes, I think my mom now knows I'm right, <laughs> that this teacher is not all there. Uh, but, but this isn't just the teacher, it's the whole administration, it's all over the country, that we're going to enforce an ideological, you know, litmus test. And we're going to do it as we talk about we have to teach the history by taking things totally opposite of what they mean and being jerks about it. And, of course, the, the real problem, as we point out, or the real reason they're doing is people, the Tea Party had the don't tread on me. Was a lot of people against Obamacare, against some of the socialistic things. It was, look, I got a right to live my life. You're not taking everything I own. That was the don't tread on me. And because the someone who's a conservative uses that symbolism, that means they're racist, white supremacist, evil. And and if that's what the public schools think, I mean, how long do you send your kids to public schools? However, there's a wrinkle on that. You've forgotten one of the things in your piece, in your piece and not anywhere else. It was just a throwaway phrase. It's a charter school. Yes, yes. Oh, thank you for I did not forget that, but I forgot to say anything about that because it it really points up that if the charter school is under the control of the government, you know, a lot of people talk about school choice and letting money flow, the tax dollars that are going to education, put it on every child, let that child direct it. It's a great idea if you let that child's family, its parents, his guardian, direct it. If the government dictates it all, then it's, just, then it's the same thing, just a little bit more confusing. Um, and there is a whole, uh, is a supra-governmental union kind of ethos going out there there's a whole ideology that's taking over all schools every school in america and that's the esd and diversity and dei and that is everywhere that's in private schools as well as public schools and charter schools it's just everywhere and uh, that's one of the reasons there's a, a growing movement to get kids out of schools period because the teachers have been indoctrinated indoctrinated everywhere and uh, the administrators it's, it's changed and, a lot. There, there are, you know, and, and I know a bunch of teachers, and I think they're great teachers. Teachers I had, but I'm talking about younger people, my kids' age, that are teaching that I think are great. It's just a horrible system. And they see it. They see it. And they're frustrated as can be. And a lot of them will leave teaching because they're frustrated that they can't effectively do anything. But part of it is the model. The model of uh, you need fewer teachers. There's we're in a technological world. You need you need guidance, really, in terms of and help to find out what you want to know. And, uh, you know, we homeschooled and a lot of people called uh, what we were doing or things like what and I say we my wife was doing it and, and I helped, but, but she was driving it. It was called unschooling. And it was, but but uh, they came up later with a much much better term, which was student directed learning. 
And when the parent says, and look, you know, the relationship doesn't change. You know, the kid doesn't start telling the parent, I want this and I want this. But you basically say, hey, what do you want to learn about? Let's go do it. And you help find the ways to do that. And sometimes it's all, it's, it's seven kids getting together somewhere and learning from different parents or other people who know something about literature, about mathematics, about, about whatever, history. And uh, that's the ones I'd want to go to. And uh, it's it there. There is so much out there. And and one of the things I've enjoyed about getting older is um, just how much new stuff there still is to learn. And uh, it it's just this is a neat place. I don't really want to go anytime soon. It is a neat place. And kids know that. It's it's you you gotta take that away from a kid. They come hardwired with that usually. Well, that's just one piece left. Publish and not perish. And I think people have to go see that one, see it and read it. And uh it's about folks who had a business that the government just in the most un-American anti-free speech way you could possibly imagine, decided they'd wreck their business. And the Institute for Justice stopped them in court. And uh, thank goodness for that. But that it ever happened is just a sad commentary. And what we all have to realize is, you know, the Institute for Justice is just so big. Some of these others, uh, uh, Defensive Freedom Alliance is that the name of the one? But there, there, there's a number of, uh, and they've proliferated. The uh, and I think IJ is probably you know the best, but there's there's a bunch of them, and they're very very good that go out and fight these things. It's it's uh, you know on, on the left for a long time there were these public interest law firms, and there's a lot more now coming on the right or libertarian side, and uh, it's great. But the abuses are just so much that they can't get every case. We have to have some political ability in the representative democracy, direct democracy, legislative branch of government to have some say so as people. We, I mean, it's great that we have courts and that we have these groups to help us in that very expensive process, because basically, you know, if, if it keeps going this way, it's already this way, but it gets worse. You you have two classes. You have the class in America that has the money to utilize the legal system to defend themselves, or even in some cases, unfortunately, to go on offense uh, in, in bad ways even. And then you have everybody else, and it is uh, the most of people who don't have the resources. Um, it's, it's one of the few places that I have no qualms on the welfare of providing some sort of counsel for indigent people who are accused of crimes. Um, and, and any way we can find that that isn't destructive of freedoms to, to help people have their day in court, I think is really, really important. But it's, it's, it's it's a, the one place where money makes such a big difference. And on that note, I think we could probably say we've uh, covered the five pieces. We have. We've done it. 
Very Ooh. good.